All right, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Esther, we finished Ruth last week and we're starting the book of Esther today as we continue in this series on Esther and Ruth titled All Things Work Together. Um, in many ways, these two stories are as different as they can be. Uh, the story of Ruth, as we just saw, is set in the grain fields of Bethlehem as a poor widow gleans grain for her mother, uh, widowed mother-in-law. And the story of Esther is set in the extravagant, wealthy courts of the most powerful ruler in the world, in the largest empire the world had ever known. But as our series title reveals, both stories, stories show us God's providence at work. God is working in both of these situations. God is working both among the, the poor, homeless, widows, working in the field. God is working in the courts of the rich and powerful. He is present and active in and through both of these places and these people in every place and in every life. And actually, both of these stories have the same end in, in mind, and that is the preserving of a people and a family line through whom will come the fulfillment of God's promise to bless all peoples of the earth. And so in, in biblical history, there's a lot of um, prophecies and promises and hints, both before and after this time, pointing forward to a Messiah who will come and save God's people. And, and that is ultimately what both of these stories are about and what are, they are pointing to where these stories are marching as God carries them along. Now, seeing this providential hand of God in the book of Esther is a little bit more difficult because as, many, as, as you may know, the God is not mentioned once in this book. God is not referred to, mentioned once in Esther. Yes, there's a book in your Bibles that doesn't mention God. And yet, our Bibles are not a random collection of independent stories and letters and teachings, but a unified grand story told ultimately by God. And when we see this, and when we read this story in light of the big story that God has given us, we see God's providential hand at work even here in this book that doesn't mention his name or refer to him. And I find it Interesting that providentially, elsewhere in Scripture, we have a verse that seems to perfectly encapsulate what's going on in Esther, that acts as kind of a commentary for this book. So you may have heard this verse before in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Uh, Esther is a, a book about a powerful king. And just like water... Here in this proverb, just like water goes down a ditch or an irrigation channel and can be made by a farmer to be redirected wherever he wills for his purposes to go to this field or that field, so the decisions and actions of a king, including a pagan king that we're about to meet, are ultimately brought about, ordained by, happening according to God's will. As I've said before, not in a way, this providence, this bringing about is not in a way that removes human responsibility, not in a way that negates other causes, and certainly not in a way that makes God the author of evil. 
But God providentially rules over all things, directing all things together for his purposes, and we know that his purposes are good for his people. And what this does, and what this is meant to do, is give us confidence that we can trust him. No matter what is happening, that we can continue to trust him. That things are not actually out of control. Yes, there's evil, there's, there's sin, there's brokenness, but things are not out of control entirely. We can hope in him. He is still at work. He has purpose in all things. And so as we go through this book, we will see that God will use the decisions and actions of various people, and none of them are great, really great moral examples for us. So, so the point of this book is, is not going to be just be like her, be like him. None of these are great moral examples for us. But we will see that God will use these things, use these people and their actions and decisions to bring about his purpose. Uh, we're going to cover quite a lot of verses today, as we did last week. We're going to get almost all the way through chapter 2. So bear with me as I read, um, but this is God's word, and we want to let it do its work. So we're going to start with the first nine verses of Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, I knew I was going to mess that up. Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The arm, army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. For the king had given orders to, oh, and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This title could perhaps be, or this section could perhaps be titled Pomp and Circumstance. Just a ridiculous, over-the-top display of wealth and power. So Ahasuerus was a Persian king. He reigned from 486 to 464 BC, son of Darius the Great and Cyrus the Great. I guess when your dad and grandpa are both named the Great, you might get a big head. Some of your Bibles will refer to him as Xerxes. I think the NAV refers to him as Xerxes. That was his Persian name. Um, his Persian name, Xerxes, means king of all male or hero among kings. And Ahasuerus was his Hebrew name, which is, as you may know, the language of the Old Testament. And this Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he inherited a large kingdom, a multi-ethnic empire, and then he quickly began to consolidate his power, crush out any revolts, and expand his empire. 
And we're told here that he reigned from, Eth from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Now, to get a, an idea of how large of an area this was, uh, one commentator puts it like this. If you were to put this on a modern map, it would more or less cover northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and northern Sudan. Basically, all the known world at this point. This is the first Persian Empire, and it was the largest empire the world had ever known at this point, 2.1 million square miles. And then we're told that in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. He gave a feast for all his officials. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. I can't imagine a 180-day feast. Now, this is one of those things where it is stated that it's for the officials and servants, but we all know who it's really for, right? It is obvious that this is for the king. This is really about him, to make much of him, for him to feel great about himself, for him to show everyone else how great he really is. He's essentially saying, look at me, behold me, make much of me. There's never been anyone like me. And then at the end of this 180-day celebration, he holds a feast lasting for seven days in his palace. And this is what we're given the description of there in, in, in that passage of a most ornate, exuberant feast. Couches of gold and silver, drinks served in golden vessels, royal wine lavished according to the bounty of the king. The author could really do little more to paint a picture of wealth and power and glory. There was seemingly no one like this in human history, no one so great. And yet then some, something unexpected expected happens. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So just after finishing showing the glory of all of his possessions, he has one more possession to bring in, his wife, for she was lovely to look at. And again, just as with the celebration as a whole, this isn't about her, this is about him. This isn't about displaying her great character or wisdom or anything like that. This is to show that he had control of a beautiful woman. This is just another one of his possessions. And yet, the queen dares to refuse his offer and in the presence of all of his officials and his servants. Now, there are a number of elements to this story that you'll see as we go on, and the way it's told, the way the author is telling this story, that seem to be intentionally humorous, if you stop and think about it for a little bit. And this is one of them. This guy has control over 127 provinces, 
and he cannot control his wife. From our perspective, we can laugh a little bit when the most powerful man in the world realizes he actually can't control the will of one single person. Sure, he can force people to do what he wants, he can manipulate and pay people, but he can't actually change the will of anyone. Obviously, this is not funny to the king. To absolutely no one's surprise, this made the king burn with anger. In a world of sin, many of those in positions of power do not love those they serve or love those they rule, but love their rule. They just simply love to rule. And they depend on the identity and the feeling of power and the position and worth that they have in their rule. For many of us, even though we may have limited power, we can easily slip into thinking that all things must bow to our needs and desires and all things must work for our happiness. Now, we obviously don't have the means to actually go about this like someone like Xerxes, but to the degree that we have the means, we are tempted to rule our kingdoms with an iron fist to make the pursuit of our pleasure and our comfort and our happiness and security of utmost importance. And often when we realize that we are doing this is when something comes in the way of it, right? When anything or any person comes in the way of our ability to control things, we see it as a threat and we look for any way to get rid of them to discredit them, to silence them, to remove their negative voices from our lives. So it's worth pausing here and considering, how do you respond when others infringe upon your life, your rule over your kingdom? When others infringe upon your priorities, your schedule, your pursuits, your loves? We all have certain expectations, and those expectations don't get met. Plans change. Perhaps you set aside time for a certain thing, for hobbies or personal time or vacation, and sickness happens, things come up, you're needed somewhere. What about when this interruption is, comes at you from your spouse, your kids, your parents, your work, your various roles and responsibilities? How do you respond? How do you respond when God you know, there's no human to blame, but when God, in his providential ordering of things, pulls the carpet out from your ability to order your life as you want, when life is not what you planned, do you dig your feet in even further and go to unhealthy and sinful lengths to just try to maintain some control, and just sit in bitterness and resentment? Or do you trust that whatever God ordains is right and good? That you were not meant to have complete control over your life and that it would not be good if you did? I think there's a movie about that. That it is better that your hand, that your life is in the hands of God than in your own hands. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths he will make straight your paths. 
with all of your heart at all of the time, trust in the Lord's ordering of things? Do you trust that the roles and responsibilities he has given you, perhaps as a parent or child or spouse or friend or church member, are good? Yes, there's certainly a time to say no. There's certainly a time for for healthy boundaries and all of that. But we are not in the place of God. We do not get to have complete control over all things, in all situations, and all people, or any people. King Xerxes doesn't understand this. And he responds by taking more control, not only of his wife, but of all women. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give a royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now, some of you may be thinking, doesn't God's word say something about wives submitting to their husbands? To be clear, this is not that. This has nothing to do with husbands being humble, loving leaders of their wives and wives submitting to their husbands. This is no ideal picture of what God wants for a marriage. This is one man and then a group of men wanting to protect their power and their control and their glory. Uh, when it says master in his own household, the word for master there is, means to be prince or to rule. Husbands, you were not in the position of a prince or a ruler in your home. That is not the image that God gives us. The image that God gives us is of a humble, servant, sacrificial, loving husband giving himself up for his wife, as just as Jesus did for the church, nourishing and cherishing her making our wives lovely and pure and without blemish, just as Jesus did to the church. And so it should not be, need to be said, but King Xerxes is no model to follow. 
either as husband or as king. Story continues. Xerxes continues to think he's in the position of God. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had debated, abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had been decreed against what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, "Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them." And let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now notice that these girls have no choice in this. They're, they're gathered up. The king sends officers out to find beautiful-looking virgins and to corral them to his palace. Um, and interestingly, this wasn't only happening to, happening to girls. This was also happening to boys. Uh, young boys were rounded up to serve as eunuchs. The ancient historian Herodotus reports that 500 boys were taken each year and castrated for service in the Persian court. And so to the king, your body, your sexuality were merely a tool for his desires, his needs. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. I'll pause there. So this is the first mention of the Jews. Um, this story will involve the, the Jewish people, the people that God had first made a covenant with and began to reveal himself to. Uh, the Jews of this time are not just an ethnic group. They're a religious group. They are God's people. God had chosen to begin his plan to bring salvation to all people and reveal himself to all people through this people. And at this historical moment in the life of the Jews, they were in exile. Well, some of them were in exile. They had been exiled out of their land, out of the promised land, to some to Babylon and some to Assyria, and then the Persian Empire, the Persians, had conquered pretty much all of the land of Babylon and Assyria. As we talked about, it was vast. And at the time of Esther, some Jews had been allowed to go back to their land and to begin rebuilding the temple. You read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But some had stayed and some were still in exile, like Esther and Mordecai here. Okay, so they're in the capital city uh, of the Persian Empire, Story continues, verse 7. Uh, he, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, which we were told was true of Queen, Queen Vashti as well. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. 
Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, 12 months. 12 months. It's a long time. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, to be clear, this is not a PG-rated beauty contest. And this is not just a beauty contest. Note that a woman would go into the king in the evening, a part of one harem, and would come out a part of a second harem, the concubines. The concubines. This is certainly no more ethical, pure, moral than many of the contests on TV today, and probably much worse. According to the Bible, this is sexual immorality, among other evils. And Esther is right in the middle of this. So last few verses for today. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, we should note that at least at this point, Esther is no great moral example for us. She wins this contest, and good will come of it, but it is no honorable thing to be in this position in the first place. Maybe she had no choice, but we aren't told that she made any resistance, and she did go into the king when it was her turn, and apparently pleased him well enough. Karen Jobes, who wrote the top commentary on Esther, writes that it is, quote, virtually impossible to use Esther's behavior as a moral role model. How would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men? Use your body to advance God's kingdom? The end justifies the means? End quote. No, the point of this book is not to give us clear moral characters that we should follow and then others who are evil that we should not follow. The author doesn't actually tell us this is right, this is wrong, etc. Doesn't actually delineate what is moral about this. That's not the point. The rest of Scripture helps us to do some of that, but that's not the point here. So what is the point? 
What do we do with this, especially with there being no mention of God? Well, one thing that we'll continue to point out, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it today, is just the continuing um, work of God's providence. Karen Jobes, that commentator, goes on to say, regardless of their character, their motives, or their fidelity to God's law, the decisions Esther and Mordecai make move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises God made to his people long ago. The, the overarching point of Esther is much the same as Ruth. God is accomplishing his purposes, and his purposes will stand. He will keep his promises. He will rescue and redeem and vindicate his people. He will bring about a Messiah and save his people, which at this time was the people of Israel and those who joined themselves to them, and which today is the church and all those who are joined to Christ. God today still keeps his promises. He's still committed to his people. He will still protect and redeem and vindicate his people. That's what he's been doing from the beginning. But another thing that we can do here is to notice some of the differences between human rule and God's rule. Because we have a picture here of one of the most powerful men in all of history ruling over the, the largest, one of the largest empires in all of human history. And if you only read the first few verses of Esther, you, you might be like, well, that sounds really great. I mean, they're feasting for 180 days or drinking from silver and gold cups. Like, this looks amazing. But it doesn't take very long to, for the cracks to show. To see that life under this ruler is not good at all. For basically anyone. Including the queen, who is essentially a slave, and there's no expectation that Esther will have it any better. Now, human rule and human authority is not a bad thing in and of itself. God institutes various authorities in our lives for our good, but human authority is always fraught with sin. And when authority figures are not subject to God, when they don't have God's spirit in them, leading them and empowering them, the result is at best, a mixture of good and evil, which we all know full well. We all know that our rulers are sinful, and that as much as we might benefit here and there from their rule, we, we also find disadvantages. There are hardships, and there are evil that results from their rule. So how does this differ from the way that God rules, and the way that we experience God's rule over our lives. Well, it's tempting to say that one difference is that wicked rulers like Xerxes are all about themselves. They seek their own glory. They want others to worship them. God isn't like that. Well, that's not entirely correct. God does draw attention to himself. God does call us, even command us, to worship him. He does things for my own sake, for my own sake, as Isaiah 48 repeats. But there are at least two critical differences between God's rule and wicked human rule. The first is that God is God, and Xerxes is not, or any human ruler. The second is that God is good, cannot do any evil, 
and everything that results from his rule and from his seeking his own glory is good, is only good. Let me unpack those a little bit. The primary difference between God and Xerxes is that God is God, and he is fully deserving of a kind of devotion and worship and love and obedience and submission that Xerxes is not. For God to command us to worship him and for God to work for the glory of his own name and character is not misguided or foolish or selfishly proud as it would be for any of us. No, it is right and good. It would not be good for God to do anything else. Sometimes there is a tendency to paint God as ultimately man-centered, ultimately all about us and our happiness and comfort. But that's not what he reveals about himself. And that leaves us with a smaller God who is not really worthy of our worship or trust. Rather, God seeks to display and make known his own glory and have his creation rejoice in his glory. He saves and changes us so that we might be, as Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of his glory. If you read through Ephesians 1, it says that three times. Like the end of what God is doing is that we might be to the praise of his glory. Now, if such a God who were seeking after his glory weren't good, weren't, wasn't loving, wasn't merciful, this would not be good news. But since our God has revealed himself to be good, in the language in Exodus 34, as he reveals himself to Moses, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. It is a comforting thing. If that's who God is, it is good that God is committed to himself. For him to be committed to himself means that he's committed to being rich in mercy. He's committed to conforming us, not into unwilling, begrudging pawns who just give forced praise to him, who, who live in constant fear of doing what he says or else be kicked out of his kingdom. No, he is committed to conforming us into people who truly love him as we behold how good and worthy he is. The astounding thing in the Bible is not that God is, wants to display his, his glory and his greatness, but that in this he commits himself to a sinful people who fall shor- far short of his glory. And he commits himself to a plan to make them his beloved children commits himself to a plan that involves his humility and suffering and death. And so what does it look like to be under God's rule? To submit ourselves to the rule of God. Just consider a few things. It is to know that our God is a ruler who became our servant and suffered and died in our place for our sin, for our guilt. It is to know that we can and will disappoint him, and yet he will never cast us out. He will never leave you or forsake you if you are his, because you are his by grace in the first place. 
It is to know that we are not merely pawns in his pursuits and purposes, but objects of his love and delight and joy. For God so loved the world that he gave. As the Father loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. This is vastly different than the rule of King Xerxes, who is merely using people. It is to know that we are under the authority of one who is not prone to uncontrolled outbursts of burning anger and rash decisions. He's always the same, and he's always working things for the good of his people. It is to know that submitting to his rule and his will brings life rather than takes it. It makes us who we are, who we were meant to be. It is to know that we serve a God who needs no advisors. He doesn't need to call his eunuchs together or his counsel together and say, what should we do here? God needs no advisors. What man shows him his counsel, Isaiah 40, 13 says. And finally, it is to know that we are invited to a feast more abundant and glorifying and satisfying than anything Xerxes could ever prepare, where we will be made more glorious and beautiful and lovely than Esther after a year of careful preparation because of what Christ will do in and, and through and for us. We belong to a much better king than King Xerxes. We live in a kingdom that is much better than his. And that is true today, if you belong to him by faith. And this is true as we hope for his return and his kingdom. As we pray, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We have a perfect king who, is, who has already initiated his kingdom and is, it is coming and we hope for it to become in full. And living in and under his rule is the best place that we could be. So we're going to do two things now. As we do each week, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate the gracious gift of God humbling himself and giving the body and blood of Jesus for us, something that was completely un unimaginable that a king would do. And then we're going to sing. And we sing to engage both our hearts and our minds in response to who God is and what he's done for us. And it just bears, bears remembering that singing is completely appropriate. It is fitting to, it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. That means appropriate. That means if there's no songs, something's wrong. All that God has done for us and who he is to us should lead us to sing. And not just, you know, some of our voices are, are prettier than others. That's not what it's about. It's about giving, amen. It's about engaging our hearts and our minds and singing with joy, with heart, and with hope, um, with voices lifted up to God. Loud, quiet, beautiful, not, doesn't matter. But engaging all that we are because of all that God is. So we're going to sing a couple songs as we, as we prepare for communion. One of them is a new song that will tie in with the, this series that I'm um, excited to, to sing together. So let's pray.